Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Road to Wealth podcast. It is your host, Justin Knackpill. And unusual for today, I will be publishing the episode about midweek. So um, appreciate everyone's patience in allowing me to publish this a little late. Had a busy weekend as uh, we were actually prepping for some uh, last minute things coming at the end of this November. We're going to be doing some traveling. And I actually want to address that I did not actually go to the economy conference in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, Really, it was uh, uh, difficult for me because we were balancing a lot and we had a lot on our plate these next coming weeks. So it was actually best for me and my family to stay away and um, uh, really just really prioritize these next couple of weeks with me and my family, which which is great. Um, so I want to give a shout out to Diana Merriman and all the folks at Academy uh, for hosting such a great show. It looked like a blast from what I saw on social media, and I will definitely be there um, in the coming uh, next year if, it, if it's going to be there. So with that, speaking of balance, I actually want to do an introduction for our next episode. And I actually have the opportunity to speak with Lindsay Brian Podvin. She is a biracial financial therapist. She's also a podcast host, a speaker, and also wrote a book called The Financial Anxiety Solution. Uh, in her practice, she in her practice, Mind Money Balance, she actually uses a shame-free financial therapy approach to help people get their minds and money in balance. And she's also expanded her practice to help other uh, practicing therapists with their money mindset sustainable pricing, and also authentic marketing so they can include financial self-care within their work. She actually lives with her partner and her dog in the traditional land of Michigan. And I was really enjoyed this, this episode with her because we go through the different psychology and mindset when it comes to money. She shares a little bit about her past and her history and really get into the, the nitty gritty of how we approach if a financial therapist means uh, is the right move for us and how do we approach one and, and have those open conversations around money within our lives. So uh, I really want to thank Lindsay for coming on the podcast. Definitely uh, check her out, check out her practice. I'll include all of her her practice, her book, as well as her podcast within the show notes. And I really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And with that, um, I also want to give a uh, shout out for next week. I will not have a podcast episode as we're going to be taking an early break for Thanksgiving. So with that, let me pivot to my conversation with Lindsay Brian Podvin from Mind Money Balance. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Road to Wealth podcast. I have a fellow Midwestern with me. I have Lindsay Brian Podvin from Mind Money Balance with me online. How are you? I'm good, Justin. Thanks for having me. Oh, it is my pleasure. I've been a fan of your content, your podcast, and and really your mission around finance. So I'm I'm just very honored to to have you on today. I'm excited to to chat all things about the the mindset side of money today. Yeah, and, and to prep our listeners, I, I think what's interesting with Lindsay is that she is a financial therapist, also a licensed social worker as well. So she sees it from a a different lens, not purely the math-based part of it, but really talking through uh, the psychological and the behavioral component. And we're going to dive into a lot here. So um, can you give a quick intro, Lindsay, to yourself, a little bit about your background and uh, just before we hop into it? Yeah, sure. So as Justin mentioned, I am a financial therapist. So my background is in clinical social work. I've been a social worker for a decade now, which is wild. Um, 
And I really had a love of doing work in the area of mental health and no surprise quickly after getting into the field of mental health, it became incredibly apparent just personally that it was important for me to manage my money, but also that my clients needed some guidance and some support. And I just felt like there was such a gap in the way that we spoke about money in the field of social work, we were never trained to talk about money. We're trained to talk about all the hard things, you know, adoption, sex, trauma, but we are not trained to talk about money. And then on the other side of the coin, you had folks in the personal finance space who were very much talking about the black and white and the numbers, but not really talking about why people do the things that they do with their money, how trauma can impact us, how our family backgrounds can impact us, you know, why it's so important for couples to talk about it. And I just felt like there was this missing gap and I sought out some additional training to help me bridge that gap. And I ended up getting my certificate in financial social work and undergoing some training from the Financial Therapy Association and kind of hung my shingle up in May of 2018 to provide financial therapy, which for me is really about helping people understand what they believe about money and how their relationship with money impacts the way that they look at money, spend, save, invest, all of that good stuff. So oftentimes in in personal finance, we're talking about the behaviors, how to save, how to spend, how to invest. But I'm talking about what happens like maybe a couple of steps before that, what you have to do to get your mind ready to take those action steps. And I love that. I feel that, you know, we as, you know, personal finance enthusiasts, we always focus on the numbers like, oh my God, if you give up your latte for, you know, 12 years or 30 years, you could have hundreds of thousands of dollars. But sometimes that's not the right message that really resonates and serves you. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a lot of it is so shame based. And I'm so honored that, like, I'm sure you've seen this too, Justin, but over the last five, 10 years, there's been a big sea change of, younger folks coming into the field and saying like, Hey, you guys, the way we used to just like hammer on people for having debt and exactly what you're talking about, like not buying lattes, it actually doesn't work. Like you, you, when it comes to behavior change, it's not just like carrot or stick. There's so much more that goes into it. And I'm happy to see the field start to pivot to look at money really holistically. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you you laid out your mission. um, And I'm curious, like, what are some of those early impressions that led you to this? I mean, I know you started within Mm -hmm. the social workspace, but how did that develop? Yeah. So I actually come from an incredibly financially privileged background in that I ended up, we were talking beforehand before we hit record. I ended up, um, I didn't end up, I grew up in rural Michigan. Um, because my dad was a physician and he ended up in rural Michigan on a healthcare grant. They were trying to recruit doctors to areas that were underserved. And so I grew up in a very small town, very low cost of living, and also with parents who had high paying jobs. So I grew up in a very financially privileged position. We went on vacations every year. Paying off debt was really important to my parents. They told us when they paid off their house, like I can vividly remember going to the bank with my mom and her explaining to me what a CD was. Like this is back in the days when CDs actually had like decent interest rates and the importance of saving money. Um, And I didn't really realize how that kind of general narration of what was going on financially in the household was so rare in the world 
until I got older. So I came from, I would say, a fairly financially literate um, background. And that wasn't in and of <laughs> in and of itself enough to help because when I started as a social worker, I was getting paid less than I was as a waitress. I was a waitress all throughout my college years and all throughout high school. And I got my first job with a master's degree and I was making less money. So all of the financial privilege in the world, I, I graduated without student loans, still didn't mean that I was okay. Like once I got my paycheck, it was like gone, you know? Yeah. And I wasn't lavishly spending. I wasn't doing anything wild. And so I had to work really hard to figure out how to kind of stretch those dollars. And it was like physiologically stressful. My job was really stressful. Um, I, I, I developed chronic insomnia. I was getting sick all the time. And while I was managing my money, well, whatever that means, like I wasn't getting into credit card debt. I wasn't taking out personal loans. I was able to make ends meet. It wasn't until I left my first social work job for a better paying one that I realized that, oh, actually the ticket here is not just save, 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 cut, 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 but also earn more. And that was really a pivotal moment for me in understanding how all of these different things intersect and the importance of not just being good at like, you know, getting the cheaper lettuce when you go to the grocery store, but also in making sure that you're advocating for the amount of money that your services and your expertise is worth. Yeah, I've recently listened to a lot of podcasts recently around like raising your standard. And mm -hmm. you know what, what what I'm hearing from you, Lindsay, is that you know, it took some time to identify that. Um, I feel like in a lot of our lives we tend to just seek comfort and it's just like, well, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't yeah, you know, I don't want to take the risk. How do you respond to, to to that? Yeah, I think I think not rocking the boat and not taking a risk in the end really only harms us. Um and, and that's easy for me to say because I'm self-employed. I can say a lot of shit. And at the end of the day, my boss mm -hmm. isn't going to fire me because I'm my own boss, right? Yeah. Um, but in terms of, of advocating for higher pay, I think we're seeing, again, this big cultural shift of, of what has been going on in the last 18, 20 months of you know, $12 an hour, $10 an hour. It just isn't going to cut it for most people. It's The cost of living in the US has gotten so expensive. The cost of higher education has gotten so expensive. And so to negotiate with your boss for a better paying job or to you know work with the recruiter to get a better paying job if you're traditionally employed, that's a risk absolutely worth taking because at the end of the day, you're the one who suffers if you don't take that risk. And, and that's why I think spaces like this, podcasts, Instagram, Twitter, anywhere where you can find people who are speaking about money is helpful. It helps give you the language you need to make those asks. It helps you slide into people's DMs and connect with other people who've, who've made similar asks and say like, how did you do that? Can you cheer me on? Um, we're finally starting to kind of get out of this. Hush, hush, don't talk about it. And the other myth about money is that two groups of people talk about money all the time. Statistically speaking, the two people, the two socioeconomic statuses who talk about money all the time are folks who are in poverty and the 1%, right? So folks in poverty are talking about money all the time because they literally have to. They're talking to their neighbor. Where'd you get your gas? Where was it cheaper? What daycare did you find? Like it, it's literally survival. They don't have the ability to kind of cloak it in, oh, that's taboo. And the 1% talks about it all the time because they're the 1%. And that's how, you know, that right. that is a part of that cultural norm. 
but everywhere in the middle, we don't talk about money. So if we can start cultivating this idea that money is something that we can talk about with people, friends, family, colleagues, um, I think the better off we all are. And, you know, of course it can be awkward, but it's a risk worth taking. Yeah. I I love the fact that there is such a large opportunity where we, even yourself and myself, fall within that messy middle between the poverty line and that 1% just because we're using, leveraging our platforms, whether it be podcasts, our Instagram, and we're able to take the risk because I feel like within our own circles, we have to be those advocates and and stewards for that. Um, I'm curious to kind of rewind, you know, in it for your clients or for within the space. How do you feel each other's early impressions dealing with money or being exposed to money? Like you mentioned your story with your mom going to the bank. How do you feel like that affects us as we grow into adulthood and how we manage our money? Yeah, I mean, I mean, the way that we learn about money as children impacts us just as much as the way we learn about anything else in childhood. So if you think about brain development and what we, when our brain is growing and when it's learning, it's doing the bulk of its development and growing between the ages of zero and seven or zero and eight, right? After that, it kind of levels out. And then puberty, we get a big brain change again. And then by 25, our brains are you know fully developed. So all that to say, what's happening in early childhood in terms of impressions around money is incredibly impactful. If you grow up in a household where your parents or caregivers are always fighting about money and it always feels stressful and always feels tense, of course, you're going to soak that in as a child. And you might internalize that in in a myriad of ways, but I'll give a couple of common ways. Mm -hmm. Um, One way would be, oh my gosh, Money is really stressful. Money makes people fight. I don't ever want to talk about money. I don't ever want to care about money. Money isn't important to me. Money makes people argue, right? Or you have a kid who grows up in that exact same situation and they hear their parents fighting about money and they go, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to make a shit ton of money so that way I don't ever have to think about money and that I don't ever have to fight about money. So that's obviously a a small example, but the way that we soak up what our parents, caregivers, neighbors, teachers do or don't do in relation to money makes an impression on us and actually shapes the way we look at money as adults. Some studies have said that what we believe about money at age eight is about the same as what we believe about money as fully formed adults. Um, So it's incredibly impactful as, as adults. So giving children, if you have school-age children, the message that it's okay to talk about money, that it isn't dirty or gross or bad, um, can really be tremendously impactful on them as they grow. Yeah. And and I think, I feel like, you know, a lot of those residual effects, you know, occur and, you know, as you go through those teenage years, you start looking at status, you know, as you grow older, keeping up with the Joneses, right? Like all, all, all that, compounds to formulate whatever spending habits or or behavior. But it feels as though sometimes that we use scarcity as this almost trophy. It's like, you know, you want to get the cheapest gas or whatever it is, right? Like you mentioned. Why, why is that? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think a part of it is, you know, in our culture, we like talking about getting deals or getting wins. Um, and so it, a win feels easier to brag about if you got something for sale on at Target versus like, oh, I got these highly coveted season tickets that were several thousand dollars. Um, 
it, it is interesting this, because I don't know if that necessarily scarcity mindset, or if it's more like in our culture, it's so rude to talk about money. So the only appropriate way to talk about money is if you've saved it or gotten a deal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we amplify that even more so, and whether it be on social media, like I'll have my mom say, oh, I saved this amount, right? Or here's the Amazon link. And it's just like this continuous cycle where we're just trying to, you know, save more. But yeah. You know, the, the real secret is actually what you've accomplished is like, how do we earn more? Right. Like, and, <laughs> yes. and flipping yeah. the script that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it is undoubtedly one of the most powerful things. Yes. Saving is great. And you can see all the people who like stack coupons and get cash back, but like $30 cash back at the end of the month, isn't really going to move the needle as much as getting an additional Three thousand or thirty thousand dollars would in a year, and putting that, you know, in a in a nice investment fund, right? Mm-hmm. So, going to your profession, Lindsay, mm-hmm. right? Being a financial therapist, how does one even identify that they're ready to go and speak to a financial therapist? Yeah, I think it's hard because it's a relatively new field, and again, our our generation has done a really good job of starting to destigmatize de- de- mental health issues in general. Um, but I tend to think about it as it's probably a good time to seek out a financial therapist if you tried things on your own and they haven't been successful or as successful as you would like. So let's say you have read all the budgeting books, you've read all the money mindset books, and now maybe you have a budget in place, but there's still something getting in the way of you comfortably talking to your partner about money, or you're really good at tracking your spending, but the idea of investing just like puts a lump in your throat or like this heaviness in your stomach and all this guilt and shame comes up over being able to invest, right? So if you have tried things on your own and not been successful or have not been as successful as you would like, and it feels like it's more than a lack of financial information, then that would probably be a good time to talk to a financial therapist who can kind of help untangle what associations you have with money, what things you can start to cultivate in terms of having a healthier relationship with money. And that includes using money as a way to find joy and to fulfill exciting things. I think we we also hear in the, in again, the personal finance space to pick on us a little bit like then it's all about these big wins, but it's like, fuck, sometimes it's really nice to just buy something that is because you can afford it and you've been wanting it. And yeah, there might not be a great return on investment or you didn't get the biggest discount, but there actually is science that shows that yes, in most cases, spending money on experiences will grant a bigger return on investment in in terms of happiness. But if you are like, let's say a big Nike connoisseur and a limited edition Air Max ones drop and you get your hands on one of those limited pairs, actually that person's going to have a higher return on investment in terms of happiness than if they had spent on an experience. So I think we have to just keep it all. um, I think I went on a huge rant, but basically (laughs) if you tried to do it on your own and you're still feeling stuck, that's a good time to get a financial therapist. Yeah, I, I love what you said there. And shout out to the Air Max comment. I mean, being an old sneakerhead, it, there's some <laughs> there's some joy that I was like, oh, Lizzie knows what's up. All right, I got it. That's cool. Um, I, I feel like that's necessary because, you know, I've advocated on my podcast around like, you know, getting your financial boundaries in place and foundation first. And then sometimes you just, it's when you're in the flow mode of saving and investing, 
it gets boring and you need some form of release to, you know, get yourself there. And I feel like there's a, like to your point, there's a lot of shame within our space. Yeah. And yeah. how do we find that empowerment that, you know, that cheerleader, right? Yeah. And how do we identify with ourselves? Mm-hmm. I think this is where I'll lean on one of the most famous social workers of our time, Brene Brown, (laughs) who talks about shame a lot. And in her research, what she has found is that secrecy, silence, and judgment make shame worse. And when you think about money in our culture, like secrecy, silence, and judgment run rampant, whether it's us judging ourselves or whether we think other people are judging us or whether we're judging how other people spend their money. So we have to first look at how can we start alleviating those things to start to cultivate a healthier relationship with money. Yeah. So going to that, Lindsay, like how does someone develop that positive relationship? Like what are things like I can do or, you know, we can coach, you know, our our friends and family around surrounding just everyday things that we can do? Yeah. I think one thing is just to get comfortable figuring out what you currently believe about money or what your current feelings are about money. And if you're not really sure, I think it can always be helpful to kind of do a quick check-in anytime you're engaging with money. So when you're paying your bills, when your paycheck hits, when you log into your retirement accounts, noticing what thoughts and feelings are coming up, And starting to notice whether or not you like them. Are you logging in with like one eye, one hand over your eye? Like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to see. I feel so out of control. This sucks. Then that gives you a lot of good information that you're fearful of money. And in in that situation, what would it take to feel more comfortable and more confident with money? And only you can answer that. For some people, that means reading a lot of books. For some people, that means like hiring a financial advisor to walk them through. You know, some people might be a financial therapist. So first figuring out like, what's your current relationship with money? And is it working for you? If it's not working for you, it can be helpful to figure out where do you want it to go? Like in my mind's eye, a good relationship with money for me is, let's say, understanding what's coming in, what's going out, and knowing that I can have a little bit of money left over for fun. And that feels like what a, a really balanced relationship with money with for me would look like. So then with that person, we'd say, okay, how do we get there? What do we need to change? And one thing can just be acknowledging that our brains are built the way that they are for a reason. Um particularly for people who come from financial scarcity, whether it was real or perceived, our brains are built to keep us safe. So if you grew up in a household where you were constantly hearing, save that money, hold on, don't forget a coupon, right? All of those things were constantly reinforced in you. Then you learned that saving money means safety and having money readily available protects you. And quite literally, in some, in many instances, it does, particularly if you come from a place where you are racially marginalized, if you're an immigrant, a refugee, um, a religious minority, there may have been times in your family life growing up where actually having that money readily available was a safety net. You could get out of town, you could get out of your country, whatever. So if those things are coming up, it can be helpful to go, it makes perfect sense why I want to hold on to my money based on the way that I grew up. And now I'm no longer in that situation, right? Because with trauma, when we re-experience it, people use the word triggered all the time, but I don't Mm -hmm. think we really know what that means. So 
to truly be triggered from trauma is to see something, hear something, feel something. And then all of a sudden your body physiologically is responding to the current event as though it did when you were a child and a traumatic event happened, right? So when you are engaging with your money and you're maybe working on investing instead of just saving, but you've been grown, you've been raised to learn, save, save, save. That's the safe thing to do. What you can say to yourself is, you know, it makes sense that you want to save. That is a level of safety. And now you're no longer a child. You have a financial safety net and now you can start investing and it won't impact you um, in a negative way, right? Like really just talking it through to yourself in a really kind, gentle manner. You know, I, I love the the sequence there that, that Lindsay said, and I'm just going to kind of pause for us to kind of gather that because I, I feel like there's a lot there that we need to self-identify and we don't because we sometimes just allow life to happen and yeah. just react. So I love the fact that sometimes we just need a little bit of space to to figure that out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think so much of our relationship with money, if it doesn't feel good, it is because we're in that reactionary state instead of that proactive state. Yeah. Well, you know, speaking of that, like we talked about math and behavior. I mean, there, there's a famous, you know, uh, personal finance person that says, you know, money is, you know, 2% math and 98% behavior, right? Um, yeah. Some people may subscribe to that I sometimes don't because sometimes now that I'm on the personal finance space, like, oh yeah, the math makes sense. But like, I have to get back to like that psycho that psychological piece of like that, that behavior piece is, is more important than the number. Can, mm-hmm. can you share kind of your thoughts there? Yeah, I think I would say it's probably like 80, 20. I don't know that it's as high as 98. Like I, I do think I'll, mm, let me back up. I don't know if it's 80% behavior, but I do think it's about 80% psychological or emotional. And 20% is about the math. Um, because I have plenty of clients, as you can imagine, Justin, who come in, who love putting numbers into FI calculators and they love kind of almost like doing fantasy football, but with stocks. And they tell me like, oh, if I did this, I would have had this much money. Or if I start tomorrow and start putting away money, I'll be able to retire in 12 years, right? They have all of the knowledge, but they're in my office because they haven't taken those steps to do those things, right? So the numbers are one thing. It helps to put it into reality, but then what's getting in the way? If I have this person who's like, I fucking hate working. I want to be done in 10 yeah. years. And they're in a high paying job and they've got, you know, low-ish cost of living. Then there really isn't a good reason for them to not be able to achieve financial independence. But they're in my office for a reason. And, and what that might be varies wildly. But that's really where the mindset and the psychology comes in. Like, well, why haven't you maxed out your retirement accounts? What has gotten in the way of you maybe you know, trying something new and cutting back your spending a little bit. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, totally. Yeah. Cause sometimes I feel like, especially within the space, because we, it's very evident, like we're putting a lot of creativity around it is that if you're just consuming it and I try to identify where I fall within that line, the comparison clouds always come in. Well, it's just like, well, this person has, they've already hit their fire number and I feel so behind. So it's just Mm -hmm. a matter of like, thinking about where you are within your own race and just and just sticking to your plan versus someone else's. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's so easy to feel 
behind. But at the end of the day, like you said, in that episode on, on running your own race, the only person you really have to worry about is you. And if you're partnered, you and your partner, right? Like yeah. at where, where everybody else is, that's their business. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you talked about partners and I, I want to kind of pivot there. Um, yeah. You know, it's statistically there that, you know, one out of two couples, uh, one of the main, you'll get divorced. And one of the main reasons is around money. Um, yep. And I feel like, especially within our millennial generation, like Lindsay and I are on the same age, is that we've kind of entered the stage where we're now getting married, buying homes, a lot of these large life decisions and money is now colliding with your partner. Mm. When you talked about how we formed a positive relationship individually, how does that dynamic change now that you're within a partnership or marriage? Oh, it, it, it can change tremendously. Um, and I think one of the biggest things is just to have the transparency and the dialogue. I've worked with many clients who've been married for years, sometimes decades, who don't know what their partner earns because it's still such a big taboo within the relationship. Um, and for me, I think about talking about money with your partner as, as a form of intimacy, right? Because what it does is it says, we're here together, we're saving up for this goal, or we're investing towards this goal, or we're collectively paying down this debt because it will afford us to live our lives in the way that's best for us as a couple. And if you take away the my money, your money, my goals, your goals type of a thing, it can be incredibly unifying to say, we're going to, we're going to be in this mud together and we're going to figure it out together. And we're going to work together collaboratively. Um, and just in terms of like actual numbers and, um, like when it comes to investing, if you're travel hacking, when it comes to travel hacking, it's like you have more literal dollar power. If you have two people who are bringing in money, or even if you have, one person who's working and one person who's able to kind of manage the household. Like there is just strength together from a numbers perspective when you have two people in, in working towards a, a shared financial goal. Yeah, I agree with that because I think a lot of it is very unknown in the beginning part of the, the relationship. And yeah. I've talked on my podcast, just like when my wife and I got married, just, you know, being financially naked together and saying like, here's my debt. Yep. Here's mine. And do you still want to marry me? Kind of yep. conversation. Um, it's, 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 it's crazy to think that some people have that 10, 15, 20 years into marriage, right? Mm -hmm. After it's crazy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's just, we don't know how to talk about it. And it, it's one of those kind of self-fulfilling prophecies in a way, meaning like a lot of couples come to me and they're like, well, we don't talk about money because every time we talk about money, we fight. But when you zoom out, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because if you have a couple who's not talking about money, then they're right. The only time they are talking about money is when things are heated. Oh my gosh, we maxed out our credit card bill. Oh my gosh, we forgot to pay our kids tuition. Oh my gosh, you know, the, the stove broken. We don't have an emergency fund, right? And so then, yes, yeah, so the conversation about money will be heated and then it goes into their brain as Yep. Here's another instance where money makes us fight. So we don't talk about it. So it's one of those things where the longer you put off having the conversation, the harder it is. Doesn't mean you shouldn't have it. Just means it's, it's, it is hard. And they're not wrong when they say every time we talk about money, we fight. 
Yeah, I think that 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 spills down. Like I, I have two yeah. kids, and I know if if those words or those emotions are spoken out in a very negative fashion, that's going to potentially trigger them. So, in a way, like I, I want to be more like your mom that says, "Hey, we are going to be paying off our house today," <laughs> yes. you know, because that, that that there's more positivity around that versus, like we talked about, coming out of a, uh, just a response or reaction. Yeah, yeah, for sure. All right, so um, I want to get to our lightning round. If, Ooh, if, okay. Are you cool with that? <laughs> yeah, of course. Let's do it. All right, so these are going to be questions like towards you and what you feel um, are going to be resonant to you. So, okay. So we're going to take the the uh, financial therapy hat off. For a quick all right, second. all right. I can all do that. About, all about Lindsay. So, um, what is your most important financial lesson that you've learned? Oh, I think what we've talked about today: the importance of earning more. Awesome. In your spending plan, because I know that Lindsay doesn't use the word budget out there for, for <laughs> those people. You did your homework. There, I did my homework. <laughs> this is a two part question, okay? Within okay. your spending plan, what is one item or category in your spending plan that you are cheap on? Oh my gosh. That is a really good question because I'm kind of an asshole in that, like, <laughs> the things that are in my spending plan, I really enjoy spending on. Um, I get a kick out of doing my grocery shopping at Aldi, but it's not an always thing. Like I do it yeah. once a month and that feels really fun and exciting. And I definitely am cheap there, but it feels fun. <laughs> okay. No, that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> but here's the, here's the, here's the follow-up question, Lindsay, what item or category in your spending plan do you splurge on that you don't care? Um, yeah, it's, it's so cliche, but it's travel. There's always been a travel fund. And even throughout the pandemic, when my partner and I haven't been traveling, we've still been contributing to it. So, um, that's a non-negotiable that I feel zero guilt about, but I also travel hack. So it's like, it feels very luxurious when I take a trip because it's highly discounted. And also then I have cash to pay for the things that I don't have points or miles for. Good. Well, hopefully this post-pandemic, you'll be jet-setting, summer oh, fun. And fingers nice. crossed, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, mid for those listening, especially that are, don't live in the in the Midwest, it is brutal. So I'm sure all of us brutal. are trying to, get, yes. trying to get out. And the last question in the lightning round, Lindsay. What do you feel is your greatest asset? Oh, my God. That is a really good financial therapist question. One of the exercises I do with my clients is like, what are your non-financial assets? But I have not posed that question to myself in a long time. Um, I would say one of my strongest assets is my stubbornness um, in that it has really given me uh, the strength to do the things that are best for me. And I know it can come across potentially harsh, but that's also why I work for myself. And it's also been a big driving factor in allowing me to move in that direction um, and being like, no, I'm going to better myself. I I can do this. I love that. That's a, such a great, <laughs> great way to end. And obviously, I'm going to put all your info in the show notes. Um, also, as a, as a shameless plug for Lindsay, she is the author of The Financial Anxiety Solution, a step-by-step -step workshop, a workbook rather, to stop worrying about your money and take control of your finances and live a happier life. Um, what t Talk a little bit to uh, Lindsay. I, I want to use this as your as your promo piece, you know, where people could find you and what you're you know currently doing. So Yeah. So my 
Instagram handle, my podcast, my website is all the same name, Mind Money Balance. Um, as we're recording this, we're rounding the end of 2021. And my practice is full with a wait list. So I envision some more self-paced things coming, coming in the new year, which I'm equal parts nervous and excited about. Um, but I love connecting with listeners who are curious about the emotional side of money. So find me over on Instagram. And if you're curious about you know, getting started in cultivating your relationship with money, as Justin and I talked about today, step one is like figuring out what your current relationship with money is. So you can take my quiz on figuring out your financial archetype at mindmoneybalance.com slash quiz. It's free. And then you'll get a little snippet of, of how you engage with money and why you might do that. Awesome. And I will put all that in the show notes for people to reach out to Lindsay and follow her great content as well as her podcast, which I'm a fan of. So with that, Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the Road to Wealth podcast. Yes. Thank you for having me. Of course. 